This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Payer Issues Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Diane Holder, Executive Vice President of UPMC and President and CEO of UPMC Health Plan. Diane, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about, so let's dive right in. Um, could you tell us about UPMC Health Plan? How have you been able to build a successful platform uh, to meet the health system's strategic goals? Sure. So the UPMC Health Plan uh, is part of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a very large academic medical center uh, headquartered in Pittsburgh. So we have a large uh, delivery system of 40 plus hospitals and, you know, large ambulatory care centers. And about 25 years ago, we decided that it would be a good idea to begin the experiment of whether or not uh, a provider could successfully uh, create and run uh, health insurance companies. And so we began that experiment um, and, and started our journey. And we have, over that period of time, built um, eight regulated health insurance companies in addition to several other kinds of companies that do benefit management. But we are now um, serving in excess of 4 million members across our health insurance companies and our benefit management companies. And we are uh, really pleased to be able to offer virtually all of the different uh, programs and services that we think people in our communities need. So we have uh, Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Special Needs, Children's Health Insurance, uh, commercial insurance, individual products on the marketplace. And I would say that it has helped us achieve our vision and mission of the UPMC, which is really to provide high-quality, affordable health care to the members and patients we serve in our communities. Absolutely. That's such a fascinating journey to hear. And when you think about what you're able to do with uh, 4 million members in such an extensive health plan, virtual care, those kinds of things, what kind of advantage does that give you as a health system, both in providing community care as well as over the past few years responding to the pandemic? Sure. Well, one of the things that, you know, I think um, has been a very important uh, opportunity for us is when you have both the clinical delivery opportunity to serve people and you also have uh, the health insurance premium, you have the ability, I think, to try to create new uh, and innovative programs and services in a way that allows you flexibility on the uh, dollar. And so when you are uh, really uh, managing an entire risk pool and you're managing a capitated uh, dollar amount. So, for example, our health insurance companies uh, of the UPMC, you know, this year will be roughly managing about $14 billion in um, in capitated risk, and um, and our ability through the health insurance programs to innovate, I think partly comes out of our DNA as an academic medical center where we're really interested in trying to figure out, you know, what really works for who and how do we really use evidence-based practice to understand what can help and what really will be able to facilitate the kind of outcomes that we're hoping to see. And I think when you have that all together inside of one system, 
uh, you have more opportunity to really uh, experiment differently and to uh, facilitate care uh, in the programs that you think you're offering that have very high quality attached to them, but also a focus on affordability, which we know is very important in healthcare. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that for me. Now, what are the top one or two issues that are consuming most of your time today? So I think when I look at the top issues, um, many of them are COVID-related. So when you look at what um, happened in our, our country, our world, really, but you look at the different ways that uh, COVID has impacted. So we've certainly seen, you know, a very large impact in terms of, of clinical service. So one of the things I think about in running, you know, health insurance plans is, you know, have people been able to continue to get the access to care that they need, not just for COVID, but for everything else? Um, COVID itself imposed, in terms of financial predictions, a lot of variability into models that, that we really hadn't seen before. So we weren't sure whether there would be pent-up demand that would come back. We weren't sure how long the uh, pandemic would last. Uh, we weren't sure what kinds of treatments would be available for people. We weren't sure what percentage of people would be vaccinated and how effective those vaccines would be. And so we did a lot of modeling and trying to figure out what it is that we will need to do both in the short and medium and long term. I think the other thing that, so that's, of course, one of the things on my mind all the time in terms of, you know, what are we seeing as our, as our um, clinical outcomes, our quality outcomes, our financial outcomes evolve. Um, also, uh, you know, the whole issue in terms of the infrastructure challenges that COVID brought to healthcare. Um, certainly in many environments, there were a lot of hybrid working. People had to suddenly, if they weren't in a direct clinical setting, work, you know, in, in different environments that we had to have an infrastructure to support. We also know that, you know, the combination of the great resignation and also the incredible stress that occurred uh, and is still occurring in many cases in our healthcare delivery frontline workers has been incredibly stressful for people. And how do we not only help them manage it, but for those who decided it really wasn't the right space and place for them anymore, how do we fill those gaps and quickly get the kinds of training programs and encouragement for people to come and stay in the healthcare workspace? So that was an issue. And then I think that also when I'm thinking about other things that I'm, I'm you know, top of mind, um, the other thing COVID I think surfaced for everybody is really what does this mean that there's such health disparity? You know, we've, we've known a long time about a lot of health disparity, but it became just so clearly uh, front, of, of front and center during the pandemic. So we're working a lot on health equity related issues as well. Got it. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, really, I wanted to follow up on a couple of the um, things you mentioned there. I think, first and foremost, looking at value-based care, where do you see some of the big opportunities going forward? I, I know it's a challenge sometimes to um, really, you know, realize that um, value-based care and coordinate that type of process. But how do you see that evolving over the next few years or so? So I think there, like many things, there, there's sort of a journey 
along the continuum of of getting to uh, you know really optimizing value based care you know I think of when I think about you know what's what's wrong in the healthcare world um I think about the fact that you know it it the systems are fragmented um that we um, still have a lot of folks who don't have appropriate access. We have other people who we really know um, are are getting too much of things that are not high value for them. And how do we, when we have virtually one dollar, and every time we spend a dime on something that we don't need to spend it on, it means somebody does not get something they need. And so as I you know, over many years have, have looked at different models and ways that we can help um, clinical delivery systems essentially uh, provide the kinds of services that attend to both, you know, uh, high quality as well as uh, imp- improved access as well as uh, value to make sure that what we're doing is really uh, efficient, effective, and, and following a best practice. That is a very, very big challenge to infrastructure. That's a big challenge to financial modeling. That's a big challenge to how people were trained. And so I think that part of how value-based care is, get, is evolving is that we're, we're seeing lots of different models and methods that are being tried in different ways. And I don't think it's going to be one-size-fits-all. I think there are going to be different kinds of programs and services and methods that will improve value. Um, but I think the other overlay that's going to happen in value-based care is with the increased awareness and the increased attention being paid to what actually drives unnecessary healthcare cost, uh, people are opening up the lens on that much differently than, than I think in many cases they have before. And again, I think this is partly a pandemic-driven thing, but it's but it's partly something that's been clear in most of the studies where we look at what are the impacts of health, and we know that it's not just the doctors you see and the medicines you take that that incur healthcare um, outcomes, right? It's it's also do you have a safe living environment? Do you have food security? Do you have housing security, et cetera? And I think as we move to value-based, we're seeing more and more you know, states and Medicaid programs, for example, or other kinds of programs ask for a broader view of how dollars should be organized and uh, paid uh, in terms of of braiding funding or facilitating collaboration across traditional medical organizations and community-based organizations that provide other kinds of services. So I think there's a big future coming in that. Got it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's so interesting to think about how that value-based care expands out into some of the other um, challenges that patients have and members have when they're trying to figure out how to be healthy and, and live a healthy life while also getting the medical care that they need. And that kind of dovetails into my other quick question here. You mentioned health equity as being another huge focal point for you. Um, What are you doing at at UPMC to really address some of those challenges? Is there anything that you've seen be particularly effective um, in the past or upcoming projects that you're excited about? Yes. um, So for the last several years, because we are such a large provider of um, Medicaid, Medicare, 
special needs kinds of programs and and, uh, health coverage. We have been, I think, probably maybe in in tune for a long time around, you know, treating high-need populations. And um, one of the things that we've done for a long time is really kind of look at the impact of, you know, behavior, uh, the impact of housing, the impact of, uh, you know, educational implications for how do you actually wrap services around people differently. And about two years ago, we started, uh, put a lot of our programs together and we put it under um, something that was started about a decade ago called the Center for High Value Healthcare here at the, at the health plan. And what we have inside that center is um, groupings of uh, programs and services that we have created uh, one has been in value-based contracting for pharmacy, which has been a very important piece of the pie. Uh, another is kind of looking at uh, best practices in clinical intervention and trying to measure and know what works. And a lot of our work in that space led us to say, if you're going to have a real impact on some of these vulnerable populations in terms of their health outcome and health cost, you need to attend to far more than just the, the clinical delivery of care. And so we created the Center for Social Impact a few years ago, and what that is is an uh, arm of our health insurance division, which allows us to work with housing organizations, um, training organizations. So, for example, when we look at health equity and we look at the people whose outcomes are impacted by race, income, gender, different kinds of variables that we know have some impact on your health outcomes. Um, we recognized that there was there were many things to do in partnering with the community. And so we have been doing training programs. For example, we think that one of the issues in health equity is that, you know, a lot of the doctors and nurses and other people who are in healthcare don't look exactly like all the patients and members we serve. And how do we get more uh, people of color into our health delivery system? How do we get more trainees that uh, can uh, have a lived experience that might be a little closer to some of our patients and members? And so we started uh, training programs for EMTs, for example, where we draw upon uh, students who want to be in these relatively short uh, course training programs. Uh, to become an emergency medical uh, tech. And then uh, we have been able at UPMC to hire most of the graduates that come out of these programs. We at this point at UPMC, we're the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania. We have in excess of 90,000 employees uh, in Pennsylvania um, and other states, but, but they are heavily living in Pennsylvania. But we have been hiring roughly about 200 people a month who are um, currently, you know, receiving Medicaid and are looking for a job and we're able to employ them. Um, So I think there's just a bigger lens that is important to look through and, and we have to build bridges to these other kinds of programs and services. That's a really excellent point. Thank you so much, Diane, for going through that with us. Now, my last quick question here before we wrap up our conversation is, what do you think the lasting impact of COVID-19 will be on the healthcare system? Well, I think that, that COVID pointed out both strengths and weaknesses. I mean, I think it pointed out that there's a lot of vulnerability in cracks in delivery, and that was seen with a lot of the 
difficulties where uh, people who were uh, less had fewer assets were more likely to get COVID. I think we also saw strengths in these large systems that were able to mobilize very quickly and be able to do things that using that infrastructure they had to turn on a dime to do a lot of the things that needed to happen. I think the, it raised the questions on capacity, um, you know, how much uh, equipment, how many beds, uh, what do you do in these kind of situations where you're pretty much mostly working in the just-in-time environment, and then when something becomes, you know, overwhelming or a tipping point, how do we have the resources to, to address that? I think the other thing that the pandemic did that will have some certainly long-lasting effect is it really made virtual health uh, hit a tipping point. And even though there has been some, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of backtracking on percentage of people engaging in it, uh, I think, you know, it's obviously here to stay and I think it's going to ramp up continuously. Uh, I think that we also, uh, I think the other big thing is that we learned, I mean, for an example, at UPMC, uh, we learned how rapidly you can do some things. So, for example, um, we knew that monoclonal antibodies were going to be incredibly important to get to certain populations of people or people who early stage COVID to basically help them, you know, stay out of the hospital or, or have a less severe case. And we're leading in the nation in terms of the uh, number of infusions that we were able to do. And that was by basically quickly uh, identifying uh, data systems and infrastructure and support staff that we needed to quickly uh, address and set up the kinds of programs that would be able to deliver that quickly. And like most things during the pandemic, things that might have taken people a year or two or three to plan and then think and then do uh, got done in days and weeks and months. And so, uh, you know, I think that we've learned that there are a lot of important things that can happen quickly. And I guess lastly, I would say, that um, mental health needs in this country have come home in a big way for people to understand differently and perhaps recognize that it's very, very important to attend to the mental health and the, and the needs of people who have both, you know, depression and anxiety and substance use concerns, et cetera. And I think that um, there will be more attention to that going forward. Absolutely. I think all our great points in looking at some of the capacity issues, but rapid innovation and, you know, focus on mental health as well. Um, you know, it will be interesting to see how we can continue some of those positive trends in the future. Absolutely. Well, Diane, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Great. Thanks. Have a great day.